0: Do you have the constancy to wait until your mind, till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving and present till the right action arises by itself? Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour we are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common-sense wisdom and his clear, open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. Tonight I'd like to speak about the water of the Dharma on various Monday evenings there's talks that have focused on instruction in meditation or spiritual topics, compassion, or working with renunciation or um, making one's life peaceful or centered in the world or various aspects of Buddhist psychology. For this evening, the last few days, I've been particularly aware of the change of seasons. The two days of rain that we've had in the last few days, at least here, which is quite amazing. All the smells start to come back and the land starts to feel different and the leaves are falling. There's this whole sense of autumn having come. So there's that change. And um, last night I received a call that my father, who will be 75 years old tomorrow, Was in the hospital again. He's been in hospital on and off with uh, um, heart problems. He had grave heart problems some time in the past, and he was thinking he wasn't going to make it to his seventy-fifth birthday. But I think he's um, too—he's too cantankerous and difficult (laughs) an old man to die that easily. So we'll see. But um, he has been very sick, and that also has just made me quite aware of change, aware of the waves of change that make up life. So I'd like to speak tonight in a symbolic or metaphorical language based on one of the sutras or teachings of the Buddha on the ocean and water, the water of meditation. The earth and all of her plants and animals are nourished by the sweetness of rainwater, or nourished by the water of the sea. In Buddhist psychology, water is spoken about or taught as one of the four great elements. And the four great elements, earth, air, fire, and water, are described as great because of their enormous creative power and their enormous destructive power, each of them. Our own body is 80% water. We came out of the sea. We were sea creatures a long time ago, swimming around. And in some ways, we are now a kind of ambulatory bag of seawater with some bones to kind of hold it together. But it's basically salt water. That's what we are, so we carry the ocean with us. One of the direct intentions of meditation is to help us touch or know or live quite directly in the world so that the four elements that are spoken of uh, in Buddhist psychology are not a theoretical model of some metaphysics, but they speak to direct experience. The element of earth is hardness or softness, how you feel things. The element of fire is temperature, hot or cold. The element of air is wind, movement, vibration. And the element of water is cohesion or fluidity. And when you pay careful attention to life, the physical life of our body and senses, these elements become predominant and they're always changing. So, during the introductory meditation classes where we teach eating meditation that probably most of you have been through, and we use raisins. You eat these raisins and pay attention. The first thing we ask is that people look at the raisin. And if you look at a raisin carefully, or any kind of food, look at a raisin, you don't see raisin. What you see is certain shapes, And areas of color and form and shade and light. Raisin is the name, but the direct experience is in that moment something new and unique, the colors and forms. Or you touch them with your fingertips. And again, if you pay careful attention, you don't feel the raisins. What you feel is stickiness or softness or a particular temperature or a pattern of pressure and hardness. The same if you take your hand and touch the floor or the chair where you're sitting. You won't feel floor or chair. Those are the words. What you feel is temperature, hardness, patterns of softness, earth, fire, air, or water, direct experience, fluidity or lack of it. Or you have a rose. Rose is the name. But what can capture the smell Or the color or the shape in certain forms. Or something equally mysterious that we have words for, but is quite different in its presence, is death. If you're ever there at that mysterious moment when a person dies, quite amazing thing. There they are, they're alive in some way. There's this sense of relation. And then in a moment later it's as if there's this shell of a body that has nothing to do with who they were. It's just meat. It's just something that starts to get cold and ready to go back into the earth. Most mysterious moments. We have words for these, but the direct experience is something else. So to meditate is to come more closely into relationship with our life, with the physical and emotional, the the life of of our being. And to meditate allows us to more directly experience the fluidity of our life if we focus tonight on water. You know, when we do the eating meditation of raisins, teaching eating meditation, one of the fun things that happens is as everyone's chewing their raisins, all of a sudden the room gets filled with sound, and you hear this kind of saliva in everyone's mouth and the munching and chewing in, you know, in all directions in the room. Cohesion and fluidity, the element of water. It's a part of Buddhist teaching. And even more deeply, it is central to the teachings of Taoism, which has gotten mixed in Zen and other Buddhist practice over thousands of years the central symbol of awakening in the Tao. Everyone knows that the softest substance can overcome the most hard, it says in the Tao. In yielding, we succeed. So water speaks to a certain aspect of our life, fluidity, yielding, flexibility, and yet, water always follows its true course. It always goes to the end of its course. Not only is water flexible and fluid, but it's also quite powerful. This summer, we were visiting my uh, daughter and new grandson in upstate New York near Buffalo. So we went to Niagara Falls and we rode the Maid of the Mist, which is this boat that takes you right under Horseshoe Falls. It's quite fantastic, actually. And there's this enormous river, wall of water that plunges over and you're just underneath it. Incredible sense of power there. Niagara Falls is a strange place, actually. I won't talk about the heart-shaped beds in our motel or anything. That's a whole other thing. Anyway. Or a few years ago, there was a meditation master from Burma leading a retreat for many of the teachers in this community in Hawaii on the Big Island, this retreat center that was near the coast. And then one day they got, in the middle of the retreat, they'd been sitting for two or three weeks, and all of a sudden the... uh, the phone rang, and they got a word they had a tsunami warning for a tidal wave, and their retreat place was right there on the edge of the island. So, hearing it, they had just a few minutes. Everyone grabbed whatever small thing they could, and they all went uphill. Right, and then they sat. What else to do? They were see they were on retreat, supposed to be sat. So they sat, but with their eyes open. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> And they waited to see if this huge wave would come in and wash away the entire meditation center and everything they'd brought with them and how far up it would get on the mountain. It didn't come. It's actually just a very small wave from that earthquake came. So there's a tremendous power in water. Even though it's yielding, there's a tremendous kind of energy as well to go its true way. Water is also protective. The South Sea Islands are some of the last places to get colonized. Or the Galapagos are places they are protected by the water that surrounds them. And certain Buddhist temples where I've practiced, the place where the most important rituals are held, the seema it's called, is a water Sema where they make uh, a beautiful temple on stilts in the middle of a lake or a pond. And then you go across the water... Uh, by boat, or you go by a little bridge and then take the bridge up and meet in the center of the water as a symbol of protection and purity. Water cleanses. There's this whole wonderful sense of purity. And we have it now, water bills, right? It's a commodity. It comes out of copper pipes and stuff like that. But it isn't really. It's our body and it's our life. And if you ever have the chance to compare a glass of tap water, even pretty good Marin water, which comes from the lakes in Mount Tamalpais, and water that just comes freshly out of a spring, a clear spring from the ground. It's, it's really different. It's like wa- water is lo- living like wine when it comes out of a spring. And we've lost that sense of connection again, like the raisins or whatever. We've lost that sense of the beauty of water, Ice forms, cloud forms, water in streams, water in the oceans. Zen Master Dogen says Speaking of enlightenment, if a person is in a boat on the ocean, it seems circular and nothing else. But the ocean is neither round nor square, it is a palace, it is a jewel. Only for a moment, only to our eyes, does it appear round. All things are like this. Infinite universes lie all around us. It is so in the tiniest drop of water. Or he goes on. The whole moon and sky are reflected in a drop of dew in the grass, if you look. So there's beauty in all dimensions in water. Water, like our life, is full of all possibilities. Life as we know it came out of water. And another image is the ocean of tears that the Buddha uses, which do you think is more, my friends, the waters of the great oceans or the tears that we have shed through loss and sorrow, misunderstanding on the long ways of our lives. More even is the ocean of tears. The Dharma, says the Buddha, that is the teachings, the law, the Tao, the truth, is like the ocean, having eight wonderful qualities. Both the ocean and the Dharma become gradually deeper. Both preserve their identities under all changes. Both the ocean and the Dharma cast out dead bodies upon the dry land. As the great rivers, when falling into the main, lose their names and are thereupon reckoned as the great ocean, so all the castes and races, renouncing their lineage, enter the order and become the sons and daughters of the awakened one. As the great ocean has only one taste, the taste of salt, so the dharma has only one flavor, the flavor of liberation of freedom. Both the ocean and the dharma afford a dwelling pace for great and mighty beings. Both the ocean and the dharma are full of gems and pearls. And last, the great ocean is the goal of all streams and the rain from clouds, yet it never overflows and never empties. So too is the dharma embraced by all, yet it neither increases increases nor decreases so just to play with these images and the meaning in terms of meditation for tonight the ocean and the dharma become gradually deeper our spiritual life when we look into our hearts is like looking into inner space Or into the depths of the ocean. The further we look and feel and sense, the further we can go. It's like looking at outer space at night. Incredible how far in and the images and thoughts we contain everything. And although it's true there are moments of sudden awakening or illumination, for many people the experience of spiritual life is a gradual deepening and a ripening. Even in Zen, they say, of Satori, that sudden illumination, that today's Satori is tomorrow's mistake. That is, you may have this illumination, but then there's the next day. So the gradual deepening of meditation or the heart of the spiritual life is really a trusting of our heart a sense of constancy or patience as we sit, trusting that within us things know how to open, like petals of a flower in moist soil. It opens one petal after another in just the right order. Our thoughts, our memories, the unfinished things in us, the physical sensations, we know how to open inside. From the Tao to Jing, rushing into action, you fail. Trying to grasp things, you lose them. Forcing a project to completion, you ruin what was almost ripe. Therefore, the master takes action by letting things take their course. She remains as calm at the end as in the beginning. She has nothing, and therefore has nothing to lose. So that's the sense of things gradually deepen. And away. Sitting, meditation, is to learn to trust, to rest in this mystery of our being, of our breath coming in and out, our thoughts and fears and love and hope all coming and going. And feel the Tao, the movement. Spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Or again it says in the Tao, don't the leaves fall down just like that. We don't really know our own destiny, what our task is. So, like water, our task becomes to listen, to be receptive, to be open. There's a story of the proverbial young man who climbed the Himalayas to find the Guru and ask him the question the great Guru, what is the secret of life? And this particular Guru in this particular story answered, he said, having good judgment. So, this uh, young seeker said, I see. And how does one acquire good judgment? The guru looked up, he said, Through experience. Hmm, he meditated a little bit, I see. And how do you ab- obtain experience? Then the guru smiled, Usually through bad judgment. <laughs> That's how it works, isn't it? <laughs> It is a gradual process, and we don't know so much where we're going to end up, but we do know that it's possible to look around, to pay attention, to learn from that. In the Tibetan tradition, one prays to be granted appropriate sufferings and difficulties so that I'll really awaken. Imagine asking for it. And one Tibetan lamas exercise I know working with Western students had them all write their life history and then had them mark next to the years where they learned the most. And then look at what happened in that year. And usually, as you can imagine, it was the years that were the most difficult. So again, from the Tao, in terms of learning to navigate through all of this, do you have the constancy to wait until your, mind, till your mud settles and the water is clear. Can you remain unmoving and present till the right action arises by itself? So this is the first sense of water, of the deepening, of the trust, of a kind of letting go. To meditate is really to learn that you can float, that you can swim. Then the Buddha says, both the great oceans and the Dharma Preserve their identity under all conditions. As we sit, we can come to rest in a sense of space or water, openness, the ocean of experience that contains all things. Our thoughts and fears, feelings, plans, sensations, as you sit, arise and pass like waves. The Indian mystic poet Kabir writes, I've been thinking of the difference between water and the waves on it. Rising water is still water, falling back it's water. Will you tell me a hint, will you give me a hint, how to tell us apart? So in many different mystical texts it speaks of our life as being waves. For a moment we're in this form and then back again into the water. And if you look, life has that watery quality. Our childhood arises for a time, and it passes away. Decades come and go like a dream. The 60s or the 70s or the 80s are now part of the 90s, right? Go on. like a dream. And as the Buddha, we rest in the midst of it all. Some children were playing beside a river or the ocean. They made castles of sand and each child defended their castle and said, this one is mine. They kept their castle separate and would not allow a mistake about whose was whose. When the castles were all finished, one child kicked over someone else's castle and destroyed it. The owner of the castle flew in a rage, pulled the other child's hair and struck him. "'He spoiled my castle and got the others to come along "'and help punish him and ruin his castle.' "'So they came and they stamped his castle to the ground. "'Then they went on and played with the others, "'each saying, this is mine, no one may touch it. "'Keep away, don't touch my castle.' "'But evening came, it was getting dark, "'and they all thought they ought to be going home. "'No one now cared what became of their castle. "'One child stamped on his, "'another pushed his over with both hands.' The waves came and took the rest later. They turned away and went back each to their own home. Again from the Buddha. We know our individuality in this culture pretty strongly. But in meditation, we also seek to discover this other aspect of the truth. As Rumi says, sugar and salt dissolving into milk. That's what I want. Dissolver of sugar, dissolve me. Learning somehow that we have this life, this amazing individual life, for a certain time. And each year passes away back into the ocean, like that. So that in the end, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, for example, as it is read to those who have just died, counsels, remember the clear light the pure, clear light from which everything in the universe comes, to which everything in the universe returns, the original nature of your own mind, the natural state, unmanifest. Both the Dharma and the ocean have this one identity under all conditions. Let go into the clear light. Trust it. Merge with it. It is your own nature. It is home. The visions you experience exist only within consciousness. The forms they take are determined by your past fears and attachments. These visions have no reality. Just let them pass away. If you become involved, you may be lost for some time. Let them pass like bubbles in the ocean or clouds in an empty sky. No matter how far you wander, the true nature, the clear light, is only a split second, a half a breath away. It is never too late to remember the clear light. Then the Buddha goes on, he says, both the ocean and the Dharma casts out dead bodies on dry land. Strange image. And I take this to mean that the true Dharma or authentic spiritual practice is always alive. It's not imitation or outer form or following some empty ritual, although it may use rituals or forms. They are used to bring us in touch with our aliveness. The Dharma is called the bachubana Dhamma in Pali or Sanskrit, which means the dharma of this moment, immediate, alive, here and now. There's a kind of passion or living quality a spiritual life, when our whole body and heart and mind come together. As Rumi says, the Persian mystic poet, when you do things from your soul, you feel a river moving in you, a great joy. So the Buddha said that when we pay attention, our life is a river, a stream, thoughts and feelings and possibilities and physical sensations. The ocean casts out that which is dead. Meditation is being alive. It's sometimes as simple as just doing walking meditation. And instead of walking and being half asleep like a zombie and thinking about 20 other things and forgetting the fact of the blue sky or the fog or the trees or the crunch of the leaves beneath your feet, it's to walk and take our steps and be present, actually alive in that moment. Or eating the raisins in that raisin exercise. At the end, people say, wow, those were amazing raisins. What did you do to them? Of course, you know what we did. Nothing. But some other remarkable event happened. You were there. That makes them extraordinary raisins. So there's an aliveness. It's like going out. We don't do it very often anymore. And just looking at the stars. At night, those two or three or four thousand stars that we can see. Or looking for a moment in the eyes of someone that we love. Not trying to get anything or work anything out or process something or do your schedule or any kind of arrangement. Just looking for a minute. Amazing. Life is right there. or the aliveness that comes in the change of seasons. Like Zen Master Ryokan, wonderful poet, he writes, The autumn has just begun. As we walk to Matsuno, a solitary goose flies overhead. The chrysanthemums are in full bloom. The children and I have come to this pine forest. We have only walked a short distance. Its odors fill us. And the world is hundreds of miles away. We're so present under these pine trees, the smell that the world is hundreds of miles away. He writes again, During a lull in the autumn rains, I walk again with the children along the mountain path. The bottom of my robe becomes soaked with dew. Just that simple attention, the water touching his robes, his cloth. So if it is the dharma, if it's spiritual life, it's that which keeps us moving, feels alive, brings a passion, a life in each moment. As the great rivers lose their names, all castes, all classes of people Lose that identity and become sons and daughters of the awakened one. In its time, this was a radical political act. The Buddha said in a culture that was hierarchical and had castes and priests, undercaste, upper caste, lower, middle, <clears throat> he said, "A true Brahman, a true priest, a true noble being, does not arise by birth or by skin color by family, nor by ritual, but by the nobility of heart alone and action. That is what makes a true priest, a true noble being. So the invitation of meditation or spiritual life is to the sons and daughters of good families, is what the Buddha said, to enter a life that is wise and joyful and full of compassion to everyone equally, This is our birthright, our true heritage, no matter what condition we're born into, our original nature. In that sense, there's a kind of letting go or emptying, a release of our background, being conservative or liberal, our name, our class, working class or upper class, our ideas of ourselves, our nationality. And an opening of our heart to the common heart of humanity, our Buddha nature. Zhuang Tzu writes, he says, if a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, he will not become very angry. But if there is a man in the boat, someone in the boat, he will shout. And if the shout is not heard, he will shout again and yet again. And all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if there were no one in the boat, he would not be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. So this is returning back to our true nature, our common nature. And it goes even deeper than our common humanity beyond race and class and all of that. Is our interconnection with all beings... We interbreathe with the trees and the rainforest. we drink of the clouds that come out of the sunlight on ocean, become the streams again and the springs and rivers, lakes of our land. We can't separate our life from that. That is part of who we are. When we open in meditation, we are all beings in the same boat, the boat of this Earth. Together, and we're all beings who want happiness. Every being, and want to avoid pain. Yesterday, here with a Tibetan Lama friend, Ken McLeod, a Western Lama, we did a day of meditation on compassion, including this Tibetan practice of breathing in the sorrows of the world, taking them into your heart, and breathing out goodness and breathing out your love. In exchange, in exchange. It was a very poignant and also quite difficult meditation to do, to really do it genuinely. And at one point, one woman spoke up. She said, several years ago, I was very ill. And in my illness, I had great pain, great, great physical pain. And at that time, it got so bad that I thought I would never wish this pain on anyone else, on any living being. I wouldn't even wish this on Hitler, she said. I just wouldn't wish pain on another being like this. And this is part of that water of the commonality of our life. We or our life is connected with all life. The water of plants and animals and the future generations of children And being on this earth depends on our breath and our actions. And we all share this common seeking for that which is happy. And by happy I mean that in the deepest sense of well-being. And avoiding that which is painful, difficult. Just as the great ocean has but one taste, the taste of salt... So the teachings of the Dharma have but one taste, the taste of liberation. The Buddha went on, the purpose of spiritual life is not good deeds or merit or sublime states of concentration or bliss or joy or any of that, nor the absence of those things. But the sure heart's release, the freedom and awakening of the heart, this and this alone is the true purpose of spiritual life, to find a freedom in our being. Not to learn a philosophy or a new credo or collect something or hold on to something, but to discover the possibility of taking the one seat in the midst of the world, in the center of our life, and to learn to let go, to see the causes of sorrow, and to release worry the body of fear, the small-mindedness that has come from the conditioning of our life, and to open to something much greater, that freedom that's there for every human being, to step outside that limited or small sense of self. Again, as the Tibetan Book of the Dead said, remember the clear light, the pure clear light, the original nature of your own mind. So the taste of spiritual life is to find a sense of freedom in the face of pain and beauty and love and loss and all the things that make up life. To be unafraid and to have the heart of compassion open in the midst of them. It is like um, that freedom that allowed Rodney King's mother to go and embrace the men who were on trial for beating him and say that she'd already, they asked her forgiveness, and she said, I've already forgiven you. Amazing freedom. Or that saying from Viktor Frankl, we who lived through the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts, comforting others and giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they attest To the great possibility of human life, that everything can be taken from us but one freedom the freedom to choose our spirit in the midst of any circumstance. The great ocean and the Dharma are the dwelling place of great beings. And again, it's really a reminder of the possibility of the greatness of heart for each of us, like the Buddha or Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva uh, of infinite mercy, the goddess of compassion. Again from the Tao Te Ching. Nothing in the world is as soft and yielding as water. Yet for dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. The soft overcomes the hard, The gentle overcomes the rigid. The master can keep giving because there is no end to her wealth. She acts without expectation, succeeds without taking credit, and doesn't think that she is better than anyone else. Therefore, the master remains serene even in the midst of sorrow. Because he has given up helping, he is people's greatest help. There is a kind of wisdom that it rests in each of us. And sometimes it only arises in the last moment, in the places of the greatest difficulty in our life. The wisdom of our true nature. So the Tao says, the master has but doesn't possess. He acts but doesn't expect. Ryokan again, the Zen poet wrote, oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. If I could take them all into my robes. That's that greatness of compassion. Or Karmapa, wonderful Tibetan Lama. I remember the first time I met him was in this country, actually, not in Asia. They said this great Tibetan Lama, like the Dalai Lama, head of one of the schools of Tibetan Buddhism, is coming um, to Boston. Would you like to meet him? And I thought, well, I'm I'm busy, I was working that day, but I could, they said he's coming to the airport, there'll be this reception party. It was like 1974 or five or something. I don't remember when it was. And I said, I'll go. I'm curious. I've just, you know, come back from years in Asian monasteries, and I'm certainly interested in different teachers. So I went, out of some curiosity, there were all these people waiting with flowers and kind of reception. And then Karmapa got off with a number of young monks with him, and I thought, why didn't he bring the senior members of his community, because it was his first trip to America, Later on, I learned that they were the senior members. They happened to just have recently reincarnated, but it was, it was actually his teacher, Jamgun Rinpoche, was now 12, that he was teaching. It was the whole company, you know. They have a very different system, but they were the senior teachers. Anyway, so I went and I saw him, and he was kind of round or fat is another way to put it, you know, and pleasant and kind of happy. And I looked at him, and I'd seen lots of monks having been in monasteries all around Asia for a long time. And I said to myself, well, he seems very sweet, another sweet, fat monk. That's kind of what I thought to myself. And then it was time to go and pay respects. kind of One one at a time, we went up to bow and pay our blessings. So I went up to him, and I bowed about his feet and he took my head and he just pushed it down on the floor which i think was for that comment about a kind of a sweet fat monk or whatever <laughs> okay get down there Some, somehow he knew i could use it anyway so i stayed down there for a while he kind of rubbed my head and then i got up and i thought well that's nice and i started to walk away i thought well he's a nice man and i got about 10 or 15 feet away and all of a sudden it felt like i had walked outdoors in winter I got cold. My my whole body was cold. And I turned around and I looked and I had this sense of this huge warm field all around him. And it was the warmth, physical warmth, but it was really the the warmth of some kind of presence of his heart. And all I wanted to do was go back and kind of hold on to his robe and sit next to him for a while because it felt so fantastically beautiful and loving. So when it says the ocean is the dwelling place for great beings or the Dharma, it's really a reminder of that possibility, the great heart of compassion that's there in each of us. We can each sense that possibility. And when you touch it for a moment in yourself or you meet it for a moment in another person, sometimes in Asia they talk about the glance of compassion. It's not very much people will go all the way to see this teacher like Ramana Maharshi in South India, who usually said very little. Often he was silent. But sometimes he would just look at someone with eyes of tremendous love and compassion, and it would change their life. Like no one had ever seen us in that way before. Both the ocean and the Dharma are full of gems and pearls. The gems, like the Mani stone, Om Mani Padme Hung, the gem of is the diamond, the crystal clarity of mind, or the diamond that cuts through all illusions. And as we become still and open, there are the gems that come. The simple clarity of seeing there is always in and out of the breath, night and day, sweet and sour, praise and blame. It's just how it is. That's the gem to see that, or the insight that we can't possess a single thing. We can love and care for things, but we don't possess it. And sorrow is caused directly by our clinging, our fear. The joy that comes, the insight of joy from the presence and the love that we bring to the world. When we see who we are, there's this great possibility of freedom. The less self and struggle, the more we return to our true nature. As Kabir says, this guest is inside of you and inside of me. You know the sprout is hidden inside the seed. We're all struggling, none of us has gone far, I know. Let your fear and arrogance go and look around inside. The blue sky opens up, the ocean farther and farther, The daily sense of failure will go away. The damage you have done to yourself fades. A million suns come out with their lights. You hear the bells ringing. No one is shaken. Inside, the rain pours down. Even though the sky is clear of clouds, there are rivers of light. How lucky Kabir is. Surrounded by all this joy, he sings inside his own little boat. His poems amount to one soul meeting another. These songs are about forgetting, dying, and loss. They rise above both, coming in and going out. So it's a kind of jewel of awakening, of clarity, of letting go, the joy of not possessing a single thing, loving it but not holding on to it. The pearls, the ocean has pearls, I read you a short story. I finally entered the magic monastery, They asked me what I was looking for. Frankly, I said, I'm looking for the pearl of great price. The master slipped his hand into the pocket and drew it out and gave it to me. It was just like that. I was dumbfounded. Then I began to protest. You don't want to give it to me. Don't you want to keep it yourself? But when I kept this up, he said, finally, look, is it better to have the pearl of great price or to give it away? Well, now I have it. I don't tell anyone. From some there would be disbelief, ridicule. You? You have the pearl of great price? Ha! Others would be jealous, or someone might try to steal it. Yes, I do have it, but there's that question. Is it better to have it or give it away? And lastly, the goal of all the streams, the rain of the clouds, is to come back to the ocean, the great adventure of water or our life. And the ocean never overflows and never empties. The end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time, says T.S. Eliot. And every adventure has its joys and sorrows. So at the Zen Center Hospice dinner this year, a wonderful woman writer, Isabel Allende, who lives in San Rafael, spoke as for the benefit and she told a story very difficult story about the death of her daughter last year whenever it was at age 28 but she didn't tell it as a plain story because she's a great storyteller and a great soul or spirit she told it by saying that a long time ago there was born a beautiful young girl named Snow White. And at her birth, there came fairies to give her blessings of grace or beauty or happiness or a lovely voice. And one fairy came unhappily and planted in her the seed that she would die young, planted in her a gene because her daughter died of this genetic disorder. So that even with this grace and beauty, that gift of that last fairy was also there to be experienced. And she told the whole story, very poignant story, of her being with her daughter as she died in the terms of this fairy tale of Snow White. The universe, says one poet, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. And the goal of all the streams and the rain of the clouds and the great adventure is to take the adventure and come back to the ocean. So Siddhartha writes, finally he's sitting by the river. He'd heard all the numerous voices in the river before, but today they sounded different. He could no longer separate the voices, the merry voice from the weeping one, the childish voice from the manly voice. All the voices in the river belonged to each other. The lament of those who yearn, the laughter of the wise, the cry of indignation. They were all interwoven, entwined in a thousand ways. And all the voices, the goals, the yearnings, the sorrows, the pleasures, the good and evil, all of them was the music of the world. When Siddhartha listened to this river to this song of a thousand voices, and didn't listen to only one voice or bind himself to it, but heard the whole. Then the entire chorus of voices consisted of a great song, a thousand voices of harmony. And from that hour, Siddhartha ceased to fight against his destiny. There shone in his face the serenity of knowledge of one who's no longer confronted with conflict, desires, who has found salvation, who is in harmony with the stream of events, full of sympathy and compassion, surrendering himself to the stream, belonging to the unity of all things. In the end, what we most deeply long for or seek is here already. Kabir says, I laugh, When I hear the fish in the sea is thirsty. What you seek is in your own house, in your own heart. So the question from tonight is how fluid is your life? How open is your heart? Can you rest in the Tao, in the water, in the Dharma? Can you drink deeply of the present with your full attention? Can you find the flexibility of water, the strength of bamboo in the flexibility. Water is receptive, and there's all kinds of other aspects of the Dharma. Maybe some night I'll do fire. That's a whole other piece. But can we find that and trust and let go and drink to let ourselves be carried downstream? To meditate is to feel the water of life, to feel our life as a stream, and to really trust that we can move with that. So let's sit for a minute. Feel your own life breath as you sit. And the arising and passing, the waves of thought and the waves of feelings. The temperature of warmth in the room, coolness of the air, it touches the warmth. The aliveness of this moment And let yourself reflect on your life and bring to mind any place or situation which would be served by your being more fluid, more flexible, more yielding and allowing, more trusting. Sense how that could serve you in the situations of your life. Sometimes when I speak here, actually most of the time, I feel like I'm really talking to myself, sort of giving myself reminders for things that I need to get through the night or the day, depending on the situations of my life. And in some way, I think that's what sangha or community practice is about, that we inspire one another or we simply remind each other of something that we know ourselves already very deeply. And we go, oh, yes, that too, that too. And there's this beauty in just sharing that, understanding together. All right, then let me read you one more thing, a poem, kind of a prose poem from Thomas Merton about water and rain. And then we'll do a little chant. This is for the beginning of the rainy season, which I hope is as plentiful as last year. The rain I'm in is not like the rain of cities. It fills the woods with an immense and confused sound. It covers the roof of the cabin and its porch with insistent rhythms. And I listen because it reminds me again and again that the whole world runs by rhythms I have not learned to recognize, rhythms that are not those of the engineer. I walked out here From the monastery at night, sloshing through the fields, put some oatmeal on the stove. The night became dark. The rain surrounded my cabin with its enormous virginal myth. A whole world of purity, meaning, secrecy, silence of rumor. Think of it all. All that speech pouring down, selling nothing, judging nobody drenching the thick leaves, soaking the trees, filling the gullies with water, washing out the places where men have stripped the hillsides. What a thing it is to sit absolutely alone in the forest at night, cherished by this wonderful, unintelligent, perfectly innocent speech, the most comforting speech in the world, the talk that rain makes by itself over the ridges, the talk of the watercourses everywhere in the hollows. Nobody started it. Nobody's going to stop it. It will talk as long as it wants to, the rain. And as long as it talks, I'm going to sit here and listen.